chapter two part two of thomas hobbs by alfred edward taylor this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter two part two the secret of hobbs's mistake in fact lies in the insidious error into which he falls about the logical character and function of definitions it is not true as he supposes that for example in geometry the definitions are the real premises from which the theorems are inferred technically as hobbes himself has seen a definition is a mere verbal abbreviation a mere substitution of a single hitherto unemployed word or other symbol for a more complicated set of words or signs of already known import hence you could eliminate the definitions from the science altogether by merely replacing every defined symbol in a demonstration by the group of symbols for which as its definition declares it is an abbreviation the only difference such a proceeding would make would be that our demonstrations would be thus rendered painfully long and cumbrous this is why hobbes is perfectly correct in holding that a scientific definition is really neither true nor false since it is in fact not a proposition at all but a mere convention between different thinkers as to the sense to be put on a particular abbreviation but what hobbes does not see is that it follows at once from this correct view of the function of definitions that the definitions are never the premises from which our scientific demonstrations are inferred the real premises of all demonstrations are partly logical axioms that is assertions which declare that certain propositions imply formally the truth of certain others partly postulates or unprovable existence theorems that is assertions that certain objects exist or have a certain relation to one another an instance of the former kind of premise in euclid is the first axiom which states that if the magnitude of a is the same as that of b and the magnitude of b is the same as that of c then it follows that the magnitude of a is the same as that of c examples of the second kind are the unexpressed postulate that there exists the class of entities called points or the explicitly enunciated postulate of the existence of the straight line that is of an entity which is completely determined when two of its points are given and when we carry our analysis of the presuppositions of demonstrative science far enough we shall always find that just as the ultimate logical axioms are for the simple reason that they are preconditions of all proof themselves unprovable so the ultimate existential postulates because they are preconditions of all definition are all assertions of the existence of kinds of entities which are indefinable now these ultimate axioms and postulates being thus neither arbitrary nor mere declarations of the signification of names we escape the conclusion to which hobbes's view would lead that there is in the end no sense in asking whether the propositions of science are true or not and science comes after all to be something very different in kind from a curiously complicated chess problem to return however to the exposition of hobbes's thought as we have already seen hobbes starts with the assumption as ultimate scientific postulates 
of the fundamental propositions of a rigid mechanical materialism the only things which we really know to exist are bodies and bodies are only known to us as vehicles of motion all the facts of external nature and of mental life must therefore for science be varieties of motion in the parts of body and nothing more hence a completed philosophy would amount to a vast system of deductions by which all the truths of physical and mental science would be shown to be logical consequences of the ultimate simple laws of motion laid down by mechanics from the purely philosophical point of view it is hobbes's chief merit that he has undertaken the task of performing such a deduction with greater consistency and with a fuller consciousness of what it implies than any writer before or after him he is the one consistent philosophical materialist in the history of thought as far as that history is known to us whose intelligence rises above mediocrity and whose candour at the same time leaves no doubt as to his exact meaning hence it is most instructive as throwing light upon the inherent defects of materialism as an ultimate philosophical standpoint to observe at what points his initial postulates fail him such a failure occurs with the consequence that hobbes is forced to abandon his strictly deductive method at two critical points in his exposition when he enters upon the realm of our inner mental life in his account of sensation he has to abandon the attempt to deduce our perception of the various qualities of bodies their colours savours odours and the like from a mathematical theory of the external motions which are commonly called their causes or stimuli and to accept the correlation of the various sense qualities with certain external stimuli simply as given and unexplained facts of experience and in the same way when he advances to the theory of human conduct he finds it quite out of the question to exhibit the fundamental passions of human nature as movements of particles within the organism mechanically determined by similar movements on the part of external bodies the fundamental passions like the simple sensible qualities of things have to be treated as unexplained given facts and the assertion that they are really motions of particles of the body and nothing more remains a mere unproved assertion which is of no significance for the further development of hobbes's ethical scheme there is thus no real logical connection between hobbes's metaphysical materialism and his ethical and political doctrine of human conduct the whole of the latter might in fact be equally well grafted upon a pronounced spiritualistic metaphysic such as that of descartes even the rejection of the doctrine of free will is in point of fact based upon assumed psychological grounds which in no way involve the metaphysical postulate that all existence is bodily in short the only advantage which hobbes really derives from his materialism is that it furnishes him with a plausible excuse for his refusal to take theology seriously of hobbes's theory of the passions it will be time enough to speak in the next chapter but something must be said here of the effect of his materialistic assumptions upon his doctrine of perception it is an immediate consequence of the postulate that all physical change is motion that the various apparent sensible qualities of external bodies 
cannot be objectively real colours smells and the rest must be mere appearances within the percipient of realities which are in truth mere motions of material particles all which qualities called sensible are in the object that causeth them but so many several motions of the matter by which it presseth our organs diversely leviathan one hundred one hobbes is thus at one with galileo and descartes and the rest of the founders of modern mechanical science in proclaiming the doctrine of the subjectivity of sensible or as locke named them secondary qualities they are not real attributes of external things but simply effects produced by the action of external things upon the mind or the nervous system of the percipient but hobbes does not stop at this point as a consistent materialist he is bound to hold that the mind or nervous system is like everything else a body and consequently that the only effect that can be produced upon it by any external agent is the same kind of effect which one external agent can produce on another a modification of its previous motions the sensible quality for example a colour must not merely be a mere subjective effect of external motion it must itself as a subjective effect be a motion and nothing more so he adds immediately after the words just quoted neither in us that are pressed are they anything else but divers motions for motion produceth nothing but motion thus we are left to face the paradox that the whole world of perceived sensible qualities is an illusion while there is not and on the principles of strict materialism cannot possibly be any one to be eluded colours tones smells tastes have first been declared to be subjective effects produced upon the individual percipient by the impact of particles themselves devoid of all quality then since it has to be recognised that according to materialism the subject in which these effects are produced must be itself just one collection of such particles among others it is announced that the effects themselves cannot really be there if the average materialist stops short of enunciating this intolerable paradox it is only because he is so far hobbes's inferior in logical power or in candour or in both the conception of the subjectivity of sensible qualities is still so commonly regarded as an established result of modern science that it is worth our while to pause over it for a few moments and to ask whether it can be maintained in a form which does not lead to the hobbian paradox suppose that hobbes had so far relaxed his materialism as to recognize the real existence of immaterial states of consciousness might he not have held without any paradoxical consequences that what we commonly call the secondary or sensible qualities of external things are in truth states of our own consciousness which are caused by the action of an external world of bodies totally devoid of quality such a view was widely current in the ancient philosophical schools and was revived in hobbes's own day by galileo and descartes from the latter of whom it passed as an almost unquestioned axiom into modern science yet it is clear i think that the doctrine will not bear 
serious examination the very ground upon which the sensible qualities are declared to be subjective to be in us and not in the things outside us is the assumption that all the processes of the physical world however various they may seem to be are in actual fact purely mechanical if this principle is true it must hold just as much for the living organism which after all is just one body among others as for everything else the effects of a stimulus upon the organism whatever they may seem to be must in reality be as entirely mechanical as the stimulus itself as hobbes very properly said even if a colour or a sound could be said without absurdity to be a state of consciousness the principles of a mechanical philosophy would absolutely forbid our calling that state an effect of an external stimulus the effect of the stimulus would have to be simply the ex hypothesi purely mechanical changes induced by it in the nervous system and with these changes the state of consciousness would have really no discoverable relation but the temporal relation of simultaneity the whole of our intellectual life would become as it has sometimes been called an epiphenomenon a series of events occurring simultaneously with certain mechanical changes in the world of bodies but standing absolutely outside the series of causes and effects and if we carried analysis a step further we should at once be confronted by a still more formidable difficulty for it would readily become apparent that whatever sensible qualities may be they are certainly not states of a mind when in common parlance i am said to see a blue flower it is really ridiculous to say that in truth it is my mind which is blue my judgment that flower is blue may be true or it may be false but in either case one thing is quite clear it is not being blue but believing that the flower is blue which is in that moment a state of my perceiving mind and this simple reflection is in itself enough to dispose of the whole doctrine of the subjectivity of sensible qualities there are really only two alternative possibilities in the case either all the propositions in which a sensible quality is ascribed to a thing are merely false as hobbes's account logically implies or else there are at least some bodies which really have the sensible qualities of colour savour and so forth it would be no way of escape to suggest that perhaps what is really blue is neither the flower nor my mind but some part of my optical apparatus for example the stimulated region of my retina for on such a theory there is at least one body which really has the sensible quality viz my retina but if so why not other bodies as well and what becomes of the postulate that the only objectively real properties of body are mechanical the fact is that hobbes like all the philosophers who have taught the subjectivity of sensible qualities commits the grave error of trying to combine two really inconsistent conceptions of the relation between the external world and our perception he tries to think of the world of bodies as being at once the cause of perception and also the object which perception apprehends what our last two paragraphs have gone to show is that both these conceptions cannot be true at once if the external world is the cause of perception it cannot be the object apprehended in perception 
in fact perception in that case can have no object at all and all supposed knowledge about anything must be a mere illusion as was pretty clearly seen by hume on the other hand since the external world is certainly the object of our perception how far that perception is correct or erroneous makes no difference to the argument the relation of the world to the perceiving subject cannot possibly be a causal one when we have once grasped this truth we shall see that the accuracy of our perception of sensible qualities of body is a question to be argued in every special case on its own merits and cannot be impugned by any general a priori arguments drawn from the principle of causality nor does this conclusion in any way conflict with the fullest recognition of the right of physical science to treat the external world for its own purposes as if it were devoid of sensible qualities and consisted merely let us say of vibratory motions of different rates of frequency all that is required to justify such a proceeding is that there should be a uniform one-to-one -one correlation between each sensible quality for example each shade of colour and a particular kind of vibration we may then treat the colour for all purposes of mathematical physics as if it actually were the vibration just as in ordinary analytical geometry we can treat a point in a plane as if it were actually a couple of numbers where the physicist so often goes wrong when he strays into the domain of philosophy is in hastily assuming that two things which have a one-one correspondence to each other are really the same thing as for the further a posteriori arguments by which hobbes tries to establish the subjectivity of sense qualities for example in the first chapter of leviathan they are all of the type since made familiar by berkeley and his followers appeals to dreams to hallucinations etc their conclusive force whatever it may be would be equally great if we applied them to the primary mechanical properties of body or even to hobbes's supreme reality motion itself since all these may be the subject of dreams and hallucinations just as colours or smells might be in truth all that is proved by arguments of this type would seem to be that it is possible to make erroneous judgments about external things a proposition which no sober philosophy is called on to deny in one respect hobbes goes beyond most of the english writers who have since espoused the doctrine that sensible qualities are subjective he maintains the same thing about space and time themselves they also are merely phantasms that is they are not the accident or affection of anybody they are not in the things without us but only in the thought of the mind concerning body seven three more precisely space is the phantasm of a thing existing without the mind simply that is to say that phantasm in which we consider no other accident but only that it appears without us time is the phantasma before and after in motion ibid seven two three the ground given by hobbes for this assertion is that if the whole world could be suddenly annihilated except one man that man would still retain his consciousness of space and time i confess i do not see that this consideration proves anything except perhaps that space and time are not bodies nor do i see how hobbes could think that motion the successive occupation of different positions by the same thing is objectively real 
and yet hold that space and time are mere subjective ideas of our own his statement it should be noted bears no real resemblance to kant's famous doctrine of the ideality of the forms of perception space and time are regarded by him not as universal forms of perception impressed by the mind upon a manifold of sensations received from without but merely as constituent elements of the manifold itself the whole distinction between a formal element in perception which comes from the perceiving subject and a material element contributed by the external world belongs to a later and more developed stage of the theory of knowledge it is indeed a signal advance upon the kantian position to recognize clearly that the formal element in perception is no less subjective than the material but the recognition seems inconsistent with sensationalism as a theory of knowledge hobbes is able to be consistently sensationalist precisely because it does not occur to him to draw any distinction between the formal and the material in our knowledge end of chapter two part two